Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Hello, welcome to Radio KBPV and the podcast of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. This is Gord Tolton talking to you. Uh, today it's June 17th, um, a Wednesday. Now, Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village is back open. Um, we have limited hours, Monday to Friday, 10 to 6 until the end of June. Um, no Canada Day this year. I'm f- sorry, we just can't do it uh, with all of the restrictions and things. And But we will be back to the seven-day schedule with a little bit of a change from uh, previous years. We will open at noon and we'll be there till 8 o'clock with other events coming on. Um, in this podcast today, I want to... In today's podcast, I just want to share with you something that I found or I should say rediscovered amongst my computer files um, while doing some cleanups during the isolation break and it's uh, regarding a book that I published well this uh, long before I came to Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village so it, it doesn't have a lot to do with southwestern Alberta although we do sell the book um, in our village and so this is a little bit of self-serving so I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, call it a Ranger Gord's Roundup uh, edition of the podcast. Um, I wrote a book in 2007 entitled Prairie Warships, which told the story of the Northwest Rebellion um, from the role of rivers, um, steamboats, canoes, and transportation that was done on the, the rivers of Western Canada during that monumental event of 1885. When it was, after it was published, I was approached by the CBC in Calgary uh, to record a weekly, um, I, I, we couldn't call it a podcast then, it was actually a segment that would appear on their Saturday morning programs. And it was usually about three minutes or so, and it was stories from the book. So just brief, brief signets, or, or vignettes, I should say, um, that came out of the research for that book. So this is, as I say, this has previously appeared on the CBC, but probably not in a very, very long time, at least 13 years. Uh, it appeared regionally on the CBC Alberta feeds, and I believe on the Saskatchewan feeds as well, possibly others, I really don't know. Uh, it was recorded in the old Westmount studios of CBC in Calgary, 
uh, and the producer was Alan Boss. So I went up there and talked from my own scripts, and Alan did the rest of it. So you don't have to put up with my haphazard editing again. So I hope it'll be a little bit more professional. Um, I'm just going to go straight into it after I finish my my talking here or my introduction and um, I'm not going to do any breaks in between so when you hear this tune in next week for another episode well don't don't shut the, the podcast don't shut your machine off uh, there will be another one very momentarily so that's 11 parts but none of the parts are very long so I hope you enjoy it and if you don't enjoy it well guess what you can always delete it. That's the great part about uh, podcasts. And if you do enjoy it, um, the book that I'm reading from, Prairie Warships, is available in the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village Country Store, which, as I've said, is open for business once again. Okay, so without further ado, I will just take it away, Ranger Gord. After visiting the battle site of Batoche, I realized that there was a significant part of the uh, of the Northwest Rebellion that was missing from most of the texts that had been written up to that point. The story of the North Coat and it's the full uh, tale of its uh, bringing up supplies and troops and, uh, and its role in the battle itself really only garnered a few sentences in most books that had ever been written about the Rebellion and in in any books that cover general history it was never covered at all and I really felt that the transportation links about uh, those aspects of the rebellion had never ever been covered. The Northcote was a ship that belonged to the uh, Hudson's Bay Company. It was a stern wheel paddle steamboat just like we're used to seeing in, in Disney movies. Um, you see stories of them uh, bringing people up the Mississippi or the Missouri River. But uh, we never ever talk about them as being a part of our, our Western Canadian rivers on the Saskatchewan, the North Branch, the South Saskatchewan, and even on the Old Man River to a point. And uh, it just never ever seems to be covered. And uh, what their role was in the years before railroads and certainly in the years before highways. Our native peoples had always used the rivers as highways. They used them as a grocery store and as a, uh, a means of transportation and getting from one place to the other. When European trade arrived in the late 1600s, uh, the Cree primarily took a great interest in the, uh, the use of the, the rivers and lake systems of northern Canada, transporting furs in, uh, for trade goods, and many of them became uh, middlemen in this trade. The majority of my research was probably done uh, through newspapers of the time and in contemporary accounts. Um, and certainly, you know, you always open other books and you do some archival research. But I have to say that I tried to stay within the spirit of the time and tried to keep it uh, with contemporary accounts and tried to find the voices of the times. 
And so I searched out um, stories of natives, of traders, of rivermen themselves, of businessmen, and military men, and, um, and ultimately even reporters, as, uh, as many reporters were fascinated by the role of the riverboats in this era and, uh, and, and fascinated about how the steamboats worked. I'm an amateur historian. Um, I'm a farm and ranch boy, born and bred in the Tabor-Vauxhall area of southern Alberta, but I was uh, raised just three miles from the Old Man River and I had often heard stories of the steamboats and such and uh, I guess my father always uh, told me stories of, of coal being shipped on these boats but many people never believed it especially if you uh, you farmed or ranched near this river and you were chasing cows through the river and uh, you could usually chase, it up, chase a cow through the river in July and never get your knees wet and all of a sudden somebody's telling you about shipping on this river at one point and um, that just fascinated me to the point that it had to be brought out. I think the book took me uh, in a series of fits and starts probably about 10 years. Um, I have to laugh that uh, I've gone through about, the book has been on about five computers, three jobs, but fortunately only one family. There have, uh, so far the reviews have been um, favorable, so I guess I must have done my research. General Thomas Strange was a retired British Army officer who had become a rancher near Strathmore, Alberta. When the real hostilities erupted, he came out of retirement to defend the regions around Calgary and Edmonton with an odd grouping of policemen, irregular cavalry and infantry units from Quebec and Winnipeg. After securing Calgary, he led the Alberta Field Force towards Edmonton. During the trip north, the Frog Lake Massacre occurred and he was ordered to Fort Pitt downriver from Fort Edmonton in order to chase the Cree of Big Bear. This overland march actually had a marine incident. Once Strange reached Edmonton, he hired the Hudson's Bay Company to build six unpowered scows to carry his infantry downriver in order to save the cost of teams and wagons and to provide Strange the chance to patrol the river itself. The scows were unpowered, heavy flat bottom barges with raised sides. They were built to flex and bend to the rigors of the river. They were steered from the rear by a sweep-style rudder. Many doubted the river worthiness of these craft, including many junior officers, and even Strange himself said they did look cranky. In order to defend themselves from would-be snipers, the military arranged the supplies on the boats in walls in order to function as armor. This included barrels and sacks of flour, sides of bacon, and bales of pressed hay. This arrangement caused people to refer to the boats as flower-clads and hay-clads, a play on Civil War ships that were called ironclads. 
Strange hired several Hudson's Bay Company boatmen to steer the scows and many latter-day voyagers to paddle and act as scouts. The Bay River men would often break into French paddling songs while working, and although this might have revealed their position to scouts or snipers, General Strange was a bit of a romantic, and he let the singing continue. Eventually, the fleet landed near the village of Frog Lake where the massacre had occurred, and this was a dangerous area because the Woods and Plains Crees tribes and Chippewan bands were believed to still be in the area hiding out near a place known as Frenchman's Butte. Strange sent his cavalries and his navy to the Little Red Deer River near the Butte. The scouts and police attacked the native camp by land, while the 65th Mount Royals floated their river craft to within a mile of the field. The Mount Royals had no way of communicating with the other soldiers, but when the shooting started, they knew where to go and rushed towards the gunfire, surprising the natives by attacking them from behind. After Strange's victory at Frenchman's Butte, the Chippewan retreated to their home on the Beaver River, and finally, General Strange was able to open communications and supply lines with General Middleton's main forces. Sternwheeler ships called the Northcote, the Northwest, the Manitoba, the Lily, the Baroness, the Alberta, and the Minnow were designed for slow travel through shallow water, their huge paddle wheel dipping only a few inches below the surface. The hulls were lightweight poplar or pine, while the decks, floor timbers, bulkheads, and upper structures were sturdier oak. The steam engines were powerful and crude, burning cord wood as fast as it could be thrown into the oven. The main deck was open-sided to provide cargo access and cooling for the machinery. The second level, or saloon deck, contained private staterooms and occasionally a ballroom. The upper level was the open-aired hurricane deck with its wheelhouse where the pilot ruled all below. Pilots had to know how to read a river, how obstructions appeared beneath the water, how the swirls, the ripples, the different colors indicated the river's depths. Pilots had few maps and no map would ever locate shifting channels. Pilots had to dodge outcroppings, dead trees, hills, bends, sandbars, rapids, rocks, and passing wildlife. A good pilot had the nerve of a rattlesnake, the heart of a gambler, and the split-second judgment of a bird in flight. The pilots and captains were remarkable frontier characters. John Scribner Seegers set the record for piloting on more rivers around the world than any other captain. James Sheets was a booming black-bearded American who had been on the decks of riverboats since 1844. He was a dictator whose mood could shift at the drop of a paddle. One moment he would be admonishing a slack crew with expletives, the next minute he'd conspire with the deckhands to plan practical jokes. Jerry Weber was a cantankerous American who would flare into a fit of rage. He'd slam his broad-brimmed hat onto the deck and pounce on it with both feet while screaming enough blasphemies to shame the devil. But he was an absolute gentleman when he took on his most prestigious passengers, the Marquis of Lorne and his consort, Princess Louise, daughter of Queen Victoria. The sternwheeler business was haphazard, and in 1884, low water levels on both the North and South Saskatchewan all but doomed the future of shipping on these rivers. To make ends meet, some pilots took overseas jobs for the British Army, piloting soldiers and supplies on the Nile River from Alexandria, Egypt, to Khartoum for the ill-fated Sudan campaign. 
The British mission was unsuccessful, but the Saskatchewan pilots made a name for themselves, and as it would turn out, their experiences would prove beneficial. Fast forward to Canada in March of 1885, where the Battle of Duck Lake erupted between the Northwest Mounted Police and a Métis army led by Gabriel Dumont and Louis Riel. Western Canada would soon be ablaze with battles, and soon after that, the Prairie System, the Stern Wheelers, and some of their captains found themselves immersed in military operations. How were the ships used? Tune into the next episode of Prairie Warships. Northwest Rebellion erupted in March of 1885, the federal government wasted little time formulating a plan to retaliate. The commander of the Canadian militia, General Frederick Middleton, was dispatched to mobilize some 7,000 troops. At a railway station at Quapel, he communicated with officers, obtained intelligence, organized supply lines, and gathered the regiments as they arrived. Middleton quickly realized the rivers would be the key to his success. Supplies, troops, and ordnance could be moved to swift current by rail and shipped downriver, saving the government the cost of the hundreds of wagons and teamsters required to move by land. Middleton would personally lead one force overland to the troubled site at Batoche. A second contingent would sail from Saskatchewan Landing near Swift Current on a fleet of sternwheel riverboats, bringing materials and supplies needed for the campaign. They would rendezvous upriver at Clark's Crossing and move in a concentrated force on to Batoche. The North Coat was in winter dry dock in Medicine Hat, and the government made plans to charter the boat from the Hudson's Bay Company. Three other ships were in winter port at Prince Albert, the Northwest, the Marquis, and the Manitoba. There were also three other ships at Medicine Hat, the Alberta, the Baroness, and the Minnow. These ships had been used to transport coal from Lethbridge down the Old Man River, but low waters seriously ate into profits and ships were being scrapped in favor of the railroad. But now, with a war waging, owners offered their ships to the government, presumably for a tidy sum. Suddenly, the army had an armada of seven ships at the general's disposal, an inland navy of sorts. The military and the transport companies rushed the troops and material to Swift Current, where they would wait at the Saskatchewan Landing Riverfront for the arrival of the steamships. The North Coat left Medicine Hat on April 9, 1885, in the tide of high water of the first spring ice melt. The Alberta, the Baroness, and the Minnow left the very next day, but in a mere 24 hours the level of the water fell and the three boats found themselves stranded in the South Saskatchewan River. It took the North Coat five days to get from Medicine Hat to Saskatchewan Landing, but the other three ships didn't make it for 25. This resulted in the Army having to do without many supplies and with no way to transport the majority of their troops. The officer in charge, Colonel Otter, was left with a quandary. His contingent could not move on the North Coat only, and the other ships would not arrive soon. But at the same time, Otter learned that the town of Battleford was under siege from nearby native bands. Otter feared what might happen to Battleford, so he hired 200 wagons and teams to carry his contingent to the battle lines. Had the river navigation worked successfully, history might have been changed, and Middleton's prairie naval tactics might have been the stuff of legends instead of being forgotten. Until now.
Like all wars, the story of the Northwest Rebellion is more than just armies and battles. This is the amazing story of the McKay family, who used a river to escape from the war. Anna Flora McKay, who was 19 at the time the family made their spectacular escape, told her story to the Prince Albert Daily Herald in 1935, 50 years after the event. In the initial days of the Riel conflict, the town of Battleford was a prosperous city, and the key to that prosperity was its friendly relationship to the Cree, Stony, and Assiniboine reserves. After the first battles of the Riel Rebellion at Duck Lake, where 17 members of the government force were killed and several wounded, the native and non-natives took different sides. While white citizens huddled near the NWMP fort, Aboriginal tribesmen looted the town. And one Métis family, the McKays, who lived west of town, remembered the days after Duck Lake with dread. Joseph McKay was a farm instructor living on the Sweetgrass Reserve along the Battle River. A distant relative was Gentleman Joe McKay, a police scout who killed a Seowin with the shot that started the Battle of Duck Lake. These confused identities would cause problems. Early in the morning of March 28, 1885, McKay, his wife and two teenage daughters were awakened when armed natives crashed through their cabin door. The intruders demanded that the family leave and without their horses and supplies. They then headed toward Battleford some 20 miles away. But on the way, they learned that Battleford may be under attack, so instead the McKays headed north to the Métis settlement of Bresailor. The Métis imprisoned the family, but Joseph demanded an audience with Chief Poundmaker, where he asked for his family to be released. Poundmaker agreed, and even gave them a small rowboat to use. The McKays had no idea where they would go. Neither Bresailor nor Battleford were safe. With only a bag of bannock bread, the McKays fled into the night, uncertain of the ice, their boat, or even where they were going. The river was jammed with ice flows, but Joseph navigated through the treacherous darkness and reached the opposite bank safely. The family spent a week huddled in the willows, using Mrs. McKay's red flannel petticoat sprawled over willow branches as a tent. Anna Flora said, We had no food, but for some reason we did not feel hungry. We were in constant fear of being discovered, and I guess this accounted for the lack of appetite. When the ice diminished, the family set out, but it wasn't long until they were noticed by a party of armed Indians. The warriors moved down the bank and hopped from ice crag to ice crag in pursuit of the family who struggled to move their boat around ice flows. As they reached open water, the Indians began to shoot, but the family rowed, pushing and struggling until the boat found a current swift enough to carry them away from the war party. As their boat neared Battleford, the McKays wanted to pull in, but they were worried about possible battles and the white residence's jaundiced view of the Métis community. So the night of April 14th, they floated past Battleford. After 18 days on the run, they reached Fort Carlton, but it was burnt to the ground. There was nothing to do but paddle on to Prince Albert. A kindly settler offered them some bread that was made with flour salvaged from the burnt-out fort. But the Mounties had poisoned the flour with kerosene before they left, and the tainted bread made the McKays nauseous, which made their ordeal more difficult. The family came upon a Métis house, and Joseph asked for food. The smiling woman of the house asked, What is your name? He said, Joe McKay. Her friendly mood turned. You are Joe McKay? You are the man who shot the Indian at Duck Lake? Shocked, Joe said. No, that must have been the Joe McKay who was with the mounted police. Realizing what was happening, McKay quickly returned to the boat, explaining, I think this woman is a rebel. It will be safer for us to leave. Father, mother, and the two daughters continued their river trek, arriving at their destination of St. Anne's Convent more dead than alive from fright and fatigue after a journey of 22 days in a little boat with only the clothes they had on. 
The father, the mother, and the two daughters continued their river trek, arriving at their destination of St. Anne's Convent, more dead than alive from the fright and fatigue, after a journey of 22 days in the little boat with only the clothes they had on. Two years later, the eldest daughter, Anna Flora McKay, married, but coincidentally her groom was the very man whose identity had caused her family so much grief. He was none other than the Mounted Police Scout, Gentleman Joe McKay. General Thomas Strange was a retired British Army officer who had become a rancher near Strathmore, Alberta. When the Riel hostilities erupted, he came out of retirement to defend the regions around Calgary and Edmonton with an odd grouping of policemen, irregular cavalry and infantry units from Quebec and Winnipeg. After securing Calgary, he led the Alberta Field Force towards Edmonton. During the trip north, the Frog Lake Massacre occurred and he was ordered to Fort Pitt, downriver from Edmonton, in order to chase the Cree of Big Bear. This overland march actually had a marine incident. Once Strange reached Edmonton, he hired the Hudson's Bay Company to build six unpowered scows to carry his infantry downriver in order to save the cost of teams and wagons and to provide Strange the chance to patrol the river itself. The scows were unpowered, heavy flat bottom barges with raised sides. They were built to flex and bend to the rigors of the river. Many doubted the river worthiness of these craft, including many junior officers. In order to defend themselves from would-be snipers, the military arranged the supplies on the boats in walls in order to function as armor. This included barrels and sacks of flour, sides of bacon, and bales of pressed hay. This arrangement caused people to refer to the boats as flour-clads and hay-clads, a play on Civil War ships that were called iron-clads. Strange hired several Hudson's Bay Company boatmen to steer the scows, and many latter-day voyagers to paddle and act as scouts. The Bay Rivermen would often break into French paddling songs while working, and although this might have revealed their position to scouts or snipers, General Strange was a bit of a romantic, and he let the singing continue. Eventually, the fleet landed near the village of Frog Lake where the massacre had occurred, and this was a dangerous area because the Woods and Plains Crees tribes and Chippewa bands were believed to still be in the area hiding out near a place known as Frenchman's Butte. Strange sent his cavalries and his navy to the Little Red Deer River near the Butte. The scouts and police attacked the native camp by land, while the 65th Mount Royals floated their river craft to within a mile of the field. The Mount Royals had no way of communicating with the other soldiers, but when the shooting started, they knew where to go and rushed towards the gunfire, surprising the natives by attacking them from behind. After Strange's victory at Frenchman's Butte, the Chippewan retreated to their home at the Beaver River, and the General was able to open communications and supply lines with General Middleton's main forces. After Strange's victory at Frenchman's Butte, the Chippewan retreated to their home on the Beaver River, and finally, General Strange was able to open communications and supply lines with General Middleton's main forces.
In April of 1885, General Middleton suffered a battle loss just miles away from Louis Riel's headquarters at Batoche. His troops were attacked by Gabriel Dumont, who inflicted much damage to the general's forces. After this battle, the military needed supplies and medical officers. But that material was stuck on the South Saskatchewan River, somewhere between Swift Current and Saskatoon, where the river had evaporated literally under the SS Northcote, leaving the steamer stranded. Eleven medics set out by wagon from Moose Jaw to Saskatoon to help establish a field hospital. But Surgeon Major Campbell, Mellis Douglas, hated wagons and horses and decided to travel by canoe. One may think a solo venture through an uncharted war zone would be foolhardy, but Campbell was a Victoria Cross winner who had used a rowboat to rescue a squad of British soldiers in the Bay of Bengal. He was also a retiree who had designed a collapsible canoe that he was hoping to market and which he just happened to have with him. So Douglas borrowed a pony cart to haul his canoe, his baggage, and his medical kit to the river. He assembled the folding canoe, and he decided to christen it the Saskatoon. Off he sailed, powered only by a double paddled oar. At times the river was only two inches deep, and the doctor had difficulty finding a channel to row through. After three days of paddling, he heard a shrill steam whistle and spotted the Northcote smokestack in the distance. And the ship was not moving. The sight of Dr. Douglas and his canoe broke the tedium for the soldiers and the crew aboard the steernwheeler. Douglas went aboard and was glad for some food and conversation, so he decided to ride the North Coat for the rest of the journey. But soon the ship got stuck again on a sandbar. So he unfolded his canoe, dropped it in the water, and paddled off into the distance, leaving the steamer in the mud. The next day, Douglas pulled his craft into the town of Saskatoon, and he lugged the craft and the gear ashore. He found the town in alarm, with improvised ambulance wagons hauling in the casualties of the battle at Fish Creek. He only had enough time to fold his boat up, stow his paddle away, and hoist his scalpel and his bone saw. And there soon would be even greater need for the medics of the military. For the Battle of Batoche was nigh, and the imminent arrival of the North Coast steamer would guarantee a river front in that battle. In our last episode, the North Coast steamer was slowly and with great difficulty making its way up the South Saskatchewan River toward General Middleton, who had just been defeated by Gabriel Dumont at the Battle of Fish Creek. Middleton was regrouping his troops before moving them the last few miles to Batoche. After a few weeks of slogging through low water, the North Coast and its crew and supplies arrived on May 5, 1885. General Middleton was joyful to see the ship, for it brought fresh food, munitions, troops, and even a field hospital. But besides those supplies, when Middleton saw the North Coat, a mad idea sparked in his brain. Without consulting his officers or the ship's captain, he made plans to transform the North Coat into a gunboat. He set his combat engineers, his carpenters, and his soldiers to work, armoring the boat with planking robbed from the houses, barns, and corrals of Métis settlers, including the home of Gabriel Dumont. The soldiers piled up cordwood, sacks of oats, flour, boxes of meat, even mattresses to act as armor. They reinforced the upper deck with lumber and drilled holes to allow soldiers to aim their rifles through. 
Eventually, Middleton informed his troops about his plan to implement a two-pronged pincer attack on Batoche. The Northcote would attack from the river, while the ground force would attack from the hill above the town. The Northcote was to approach from behind the town and await the signal from Middleton's cannons atop the hill. Then the vessel would dock and deploy its troops on shore, while Middleton would charge down the hill with his infantry and cavalry. Middleton was confident that this strategy would defeat the Métis soldiers, but little did he know that Gabriel Dumont anticipated the plan. So as Middleton's ragtag group of soldiers, which included firemen, engineers, cooks, deckhands, a sick officer named Hugh MacDonald, who was actually Prime Minister Sir John A. MacDonald's son, and a few actual soldiers gathered on the river preparing to surprise Dumont's troops. But the Métis soldiers were organized and waiting. Tune in to the next episode of Prairie Warships to hear who will emerge victorious, Middleton or Dumont. last left General Middleton and his troops, they were waiting to attack on Batoche. They had soldiers on the North Coat steamer ready to attack from the river while the ground forces were amassing to attack from the hill above the town. In the twilight hours of May 9, 1885, the North Coat left Gabriel's Crossing to chug the six miles of river to Batoche as General Middleton's land column began to march. Three miles from Batoche, the boat halted. Then Middleton ordered a cannon blast to signal the ship to proceed. A couple of miles downriver, the soldiers on the North Coat heard the signal but realized they were too early for a coordinated attack as the ship was being pulled along by the current. The North Coat rounded the bend an hour before Middleton's land force would arrive. The ship's captain ordered a firing of a phosphorus flare to let the general know he'd arrived. There was no danger of alarming the Métis with the flare. They had scouts along the shore and already knew the ship was there. But when Louis Riel saw the flare, he told his troops the flare was a thunderbolt from the Almighty to destroy their enemy. Gabriel Dumont sent some of his forces to the north side of the river bend, where the North Coat would pass close to the shore and others to the opposite side of the river. The North Coat would have to run a gauntlet. When the North Coat rounded the bend, the crew was raked by a fierce storm of bullets from both banks. Bullets buzzed from Métis rifles behind almost every bush, tree, and house, and the ship was caught in a deadly crossfire. A medic was one of the first hit as everyone on board shouldered rifles. The ill and the wounded used mattresses to barricade their staterooms and then got up and returned fire. But even though they were hurt, they battled on and crew members reported seeing several Métis fall down riverbanks. Some say the crew cowered in the hold, but most accounts say they either returned fire or passed ammunition and some say the engineer and the cook even enjoyed the sound of the bullets hitting the iron boilers. But the Métis were born hunters, fighting for their ancestral home and way of life, and Gabriel Dumont decided to set a trap, using the ferry cable strung across the river. At the crossing, they could take out the ship's pilot, leaving the boat adrift, and then they'd use the cable to capsize the North Coat. Rebel marksmen made the wheelhouse their target, knowing the pilot controlled the boat from atop the vessel. Inside the wheelhouse, Rennie Talbot had to hold a small stove up in front of his breast and head as bullets bounced off it. Captain Sheets and Seegers held a hay bale in front of them that reportedly stopped 20 shots. Finally, the trio had to hit the deck, but Seegers took unique action. 
While laying on his back, his body was protected by a pair of stoves, and he began to steer the ship with his feet. On either side of the river, Métis ferrymen were furiously working wrenches in order to lower the ferry cable. Tune in to the next episode of Prairie Warships to hear what happened to the Northcote and the Métis. In the last episode of Prairie Warships, we left the crew of the North Coast steamship as they were floating haphazardly down the South Saskatchewan River near Batoche, all the while being riddled by bullets fired by Métis soldiers on the shores. And the bullets weren't the only problem. The Métis were working rapidly to lower a metal cable in order to capsize the approaching ship. Gabriel Dumont's tactics required the cable that guided the Batoche ferry be lowered to stop the North Coast, or to capsize it, or maybe even slice off the upper decks. If stopped, the Métis could board and capture the ship's cargo of supplies, guns, ammunition, medical equipment, and food. As the North Coat crept closer, the Métis readied to rush the ship. The cable narrowly passed over the pilot house and then caught the smokestacks, which crashed onto the deck. As the stacks fell, the old wood decks caught fire from the hot cinders, and while still under attack, soldiers and crewmen scrambled to put out the fire. The noise frightened those on the lower decks, causing them to think the whole upper deck had been taken out. But the North Coat refused to be trapped, forging on by sheer inertia. But the loss of the smokestacks dealt a crippling blow. Boiler pressure and operating temperature were lost, and the engines were at minimal power, and communication between the pilot and the engineer were lost. As Middleton's land troops arrived from above the village, they realized they were too late for the planned two-pronged attack but their arrival sent the Métis scrambling from the river in order to repel the troops that were arriving from the hill. Back at the river, the North Coat swung sharply sideways, pointing the ship towards the shore, where they came close to crashing into a series of rocky shoals and a large boulder. What's more, the boat had to be righted, or it was going to hit the river bank where the Métis could board it. Captain Seegers quickly realized that the paddle wheel must be put in reverse in order to keep the ship from crashing into the shore. The pilot hollered for the engineer to start the engines, but that engineer had gone for cover. Just as the North Coat was running aground, the assistant engineer, still ducking bullets, turned the throttle valve and started the engines, which saved the ship from running aground and being boarded. The attack was beginning to wither, though sporadic gunfire remained. Most of the Métis had turned to repel Middleton's ground army. The battle had shifted. Four days later, Middleton took control of Batoche. Reporter George Ham, who was a reporter aboard the North Coat, relayed the fullness of the drama in his newspaper accounts, where he wrote, I kept up a steady fire at something unknown. I don't know whether I hit any clouds or not, but I am assured of one thing. If any lead mines are ever discovered on the banks of the Saskatchewan, I should have a prior claim over anybody in their ownership. This was the first naval battle in the Canadian Northwest, and I imagine it will be the last. At any rate, it will be as far as yours truly is concerned.
After the fall of Batoche, the battle-scarred Northcote returned to the battle site to assist with the cleanup. She was joined by her sister ship, the Marquis, and ultimately the other ships, including the Northwest, the Alberta, and the Baroness. The Alberta and Baroness brought badly needed supplies, ammunition, and fresh troops, but mostly the ships became valuable as ambulances. There were wounded who needed to be moved from Batoche to the field hospital in Saskatoon, and ship travel was deemed to be the best mode. Injured troops from both sides of the battle were taken on the ships to travel for treatment at the Saskatoon Hospital. But one Métis prisoner garnered more attention than most. Louis Riel surrendered to the Canadian forces after the fall of Batoche and arrangements were made to transport him to Saskatoon by river and then overland by wagon to Regina. This was a huge security risk as Gabriel Dumont was still free, his whereabouts unknown and the countryside rife with sympathizers. The duty was given to Winnipeg Cavalry Officer George Young, coincidentally the son of a minister who Riel had once imprisoned. Young was up to the job and once aboard the ship made it known that anyone attempting to harm Riel would first have to kill him to get through to the prisoner. For Middleton, there was still the matter of Poundmaker and Big Bear who remained free. Middleton moved his command from the South Saskatchewan to the North Saskatchewan and by the time he'd reached Battleford, Poundmaker had surrendered. So the general cruised the North Saskatchewan, landing troops at various points in order for them to pursue Big Bear's bands into the marshlands. Big Bear himself and his son escaped down the North Saskatchewan on a home-built raft with the SS Alberta and its crew in hot pursuit. At one point, they were so close to Big Bear, he could smell their cooking fires, but they still couldn't catch him. Big Bear eventually surrendered near Fort Carlton in early July of 1885. With the rebellion all but broken, Middleton laid his plans to remove his Manitoba and Eastern troops out of the prairies and used the steamboat fleet to demobilize them. On the Saskatchewan River, the troops were shipped to the head of Lake Winnipeg and then down the lake to Selkirk, Manitoba, where they could be put on rails. The wounded from the Saskatoon Hospital were also shipped in this manner to the Winnipeg Medical Facility, where doctors credited the ships with saving the lives of many of the most fragile cases. Once railroads arrived, Citizens and shippers opted to use this more reliable means of transportation. Although the steamboats played an important role in settling the West, they died dishonorable deaths. They were abandoned, burned, salvaged for their lumber, or wrecked in floods. Today, river navigation on the prairie is a concept barely considered, but at one point the river was the lifeblood and the soul of the land. All we can do now is remember. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaibrown.ca. Kootenai is spelled K O O. T-E-N-A-I Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum, or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.